Hey folks, this is Boris Shabess, and you're listening to The Sequel Show. If you're new to the show, this is a space I use to talk about all things data and data-driven operations with some of my favorite people from across the industry. Some of these conversations are one-on-one, sometimes we do group conversations, and even sometimes we get into hearty debate about the role of data teams and data technology and all the changes going on in our industry. Okay, this week I was joined by Mark Stone, who runs the analytics team at ClickUp. He really understands the challenges of going from being the only person working on data to running a very large data team. We covered a lot of ground, and he has some great lessons from his career. Things like what private companies can learn from governments and nonprofits. How to think about data pipelines when there's a human in the mix. How to architect your systems for speed and robustness. How to stay ahead of your users' needs and kind of predict what they want. And what the appropriate team size is for your maturity level. It was a really fun conversation. I learned a ton, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Well, Mark, thanks for joining me on this. Why don't we start by telling folks who you are? <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's it's been too long, Boris. It really has. Let's see. Yeah, so my name is Mark. I'm the head of analytics at ClickUp, and I've been here a little over a year, and I was the first sort of analytics hire at ClickUp. And so I really came on board with the vision of building a fully modern data analytics pipeline and just really powering up all the functions of analytics across the board from architecture to analysts and KPIs, and then also machine learning and data science. So that's what we've been up to the last year, and it's been going pretty well so far. How did you, okay, well, let's rewind. How did you even end up in a situation to be the, you know, the first data hire at a company like ClickUp? Yeah, it's, it's probably one of the less traditional routes. I really, I look at myself more as like a data project manager. Like I really like working on sort of all aspects of data and it really did happen somewhat accidentally. So my first job out of college, it was actually an unpaid internship at a small business intelligence company. And on day one, they basically sat me down at a business intelligence software. This was many years ago. They didn't look like they do today. And they were basically like, build a dashboard. Like, so that was my very first day of professional experience was here's a BI tool, build a dashboard. And I didn't really know what that was going to be or how that was going to work. But it, I mean, from then, was the I just spec. loved it. That was the spec. It was not like, here's what the business cares about. Like, just like, no, it was, I mean, like I said, it was an unpaid internship. It was basically an interview. It was just like, Hey, can you figure this out? Like, can you navigate this and understand it? And I ended up working there for years, doing a bunch of stuff. I started, so it was, um, this was balanced scorecards, strategic management consulting. So I really dove in deep early on KPIs. And then I actually did consulting with like private sector businesses and some public sector, like governments and nonprofits doing data design. So like, what data are we going to collect? And this is one of the things that I think businesses on that side of the house really take for granted is like, you always have data, but working with like nonprofits and government, they actually don't start with data. Like when they want to measure things like social impact of the spending that they do, they actually don't have any systems that say like, oh, here's the impact that you had. Like they have to start from very first principles and say, 
we want to measure high school graduation rates. Okay, how do we do that? We have to go create a survey. We have to collect data from the census. Like we, we have to go do very base level data collection. Then you move on to where do you store it and warehousing and processing and visualization. And so I got to, I got really connected to the whole kind of pipeline or the whole workflow of data from you have a KPI that you know you need, but you have nothing and where do you go get it? And that's what we did a lot of there is working with them to design the collection method all the way through actual visualizing it in that business intelligence system. So that's kind of where I started was all that. But as I was there, I was kind of like, hey, this business intelligence system, it's not very good. I would go out on site and I would train with customers and they'd be like, why is it slow? Why is this not here? Like, why is this button not work? Like all the normal like customer things. And so then I got really involved with product. And so I started actually like working with the product team and trying to improve the product and engineering. And over time, I was leading the product in terms of development, got an offer at another organization doing very similar stuff out on the East Coast. And they wanted to basically start from scratch on a brand new business intelligence system for governments and nonprofits. And so I came in there as product manager leading that brand new product. I had a friend of mine who I brought in as the lead architect to do really do the heavy back end lifting and architecture. And over nine months, uh, we just kind of grinded, hired some contractors, built up a team, built this product, and we ended up delivering it like on time, under budget, brand new product, brought it to market in the business intelligence space. It was super cool. And then I spent many years there growing that product and then really doing a lot of implementation. So from product manager, I was promoted to chief operating officer where I got to really do a lot of the high level customer implementations for this because it's when you work with government nonprofit and you have a big product offering like this, a lot of your time is actually spent on implementation because they don't have as much internal teams to really take over these. So they just hire the firms that basically make the products to really help a lot more with the implementation, maybe 50% more than you would do in like the private sector is kind of what we saw. And so we'd go deeper, we'd form six, seven month relationships and try to get the product as long. So I got to do a lot of those implementations kind of around the world with, again, governments, nonprofits, these big organizations. And so is the, is the mental model there that they have a lot of data, but just very low expertise? Is that the kind of is that a reasonable mental model? Not with the ones we were working with. No, it was really that they didn't have much data. Again, businesses take it for granted. You have financial transactions with all of your customers. If you're a nonprofit doing literacy or like graduation, anything like that, like you don't necessarily have user IDs. Like you don't have high school graduation rates. Like you don't have the individual kids' names and their birth dates and socials. Like you don't have all that data. You just have like you had a class on a certain day or an after school program. And so you don't have a lot of that data, even on the government side, they don't necessarily have these giant warehouses and repositories of constituent data just sitting around because of all kinds of privacy concerns. So pretty much every project that we work on, you really do start from scratch with the people leading the project. It's like, okay, maybe we can get some data from this other government organization or over here. They can usually find some, but it's not perfect overlap. So every single project you really, like I said, start from first principles. You say, hey, here's the KPI we want to do, or here's the thing. Where can we get the data? Bring it in, collect it, clean it, and then visualize it. And that's why those projects last three months to 12 months. Is you, It's a long process. So I would say in my experience, it wasn't that they had a lot of data, whereas businesses really do. You have all your financial transactions. You got their billing address. You have all this stuff to start with, at least. Got it. 
Okay, so in a way, your career is, even though it was really at one or two companies, you ended up actually involved in data projects spanning a ton of different distinct entities. Yeah, easily hundreds. Yeah, I've seen the insides of lots of organizations from private sector through really large central banks at countries around the world, all kinds of fun things doing, again, weird like kind of niche projects in terms of like literacy here or financial literacy over there, graduation, healthcare, like all this different stuff. And one of the main things that kind of pulled me towards ClickUp is that I had done this so many times. It's like you start from first principles, you like to do all this and it's like, and then you have to, you leave, right? Like it's the standard kind of consulting paradox. Like you can do great work and you have to step aside. And I wanted to transition to a place where like I can do, use all these things I learned and put a stamp on it and really shepherd it all the way through. I mean, I don't know, a certain number of years where you're like, this is a good high functioning team architecture outcomes, like things are going uh, really well. And I wanted to really own that from beginning to end for a long time. And yeah, that's what really brought me over here and gave me the experience to do that. That's really interesting. Okay. I have questions given <laughs> how many, uh, how many of these projects you got to do. And I don't get to talk to that many people who have like had data or let's call it leadership roles in government and nonprofits. I, I've, I actually have a lot of personal connections to people who are in that space, but not on this, not from this uh, angle. So what did they do well? Is there anything you could, is there anything the private sector or even the tech sector could learn from anyone in, in government, nonprofit, et cetera? Interesting question. Yeah. I think what they did really well is they really started with the KPIs. Like I said, they never had data. So they never got to start just badgering analysts where they were like, hey, I need this reactive report. I need sales from last Tuesday. I need what's the lead volume from this day? How many customers came in on third? Like they never get to ask those kinds of questions because they don't have the data. So they always have to start from a KPI or an outcome that they want to see. Got it. Um, they don't get to start at that operational level. And right, because they start from a position of scarcity of data rather than abundance. So mm. you step one, ask, find what question you might want to ask, and then we'll have to work all the way backwards. I got it. Huh. So they were very thoughtful about their KPIs. Yeah, and every data point was a lot more expensive to collect. So like they were judicious in what they collected and what they aimed at. And that's something I've seen again with the private sector clients. Like they do that you have 10,000 KPIs and it's the leader's job to actually pick the three that will drive the business forward. In government, they only have 10 KPIs and Got they it. pick still three, but it's a lot easier for them. So from an analyst's life perspective, that's really nice. I'm sure a lot of people in your role in, and then that you and I know in our field would love it if there were only 10 KPIs to fulfill, right? In their job ever. Yeah. I mean, huh. it comes with all its own challenges again around data privacy and demographics. Cause then you have like KPIs, you always break them down by demographics and that becomes this sort of exponentially expanding problem with that data. And how do you collect all those demographics accurately? So it's not like it's a cushy job compared to the other side, but it's definitely different challenges for sure. It's not like, Oh, they do analytics. We do analytics. It's all the same. It's like, no, it's, it, you start from very different places. And so, and leaving aside like general variance in skill of people, what, since you were brought in to like result, like build these almost from scratch, right? Like we have this KPI we want to collect and, and present all, like you basically built, you know, end to end data stacks, all these like hundreds of times. What would be the main ways these failed? Like what were the reasons these projects would fail? Also, also right on point questions in terms of 
failing a lot of it came down to champions so the cool thing is like we always one of the things i loved about working there is like we always got to work with the most ambitious people in governments and nonprofits as you know there's the refrain of like you have politics that turn over and administrations change and like that's a real existential threat for these kinds of projects really at every level especially in the united states with our regular turnover of administrations a lot of these fall into executive branches that do kind of wholesale a turnover it is, isn't that an amazing thing that people don't realize how many humans flip over every four years in the U.S.? Like, it's yeah. like thousands of executives basically change, right? And it has, a, it has a huge impact on the ability to do long-term planning. I mean, every problem that we tackled at when I worked in that capacity, they were all 10-year problems. Like, that's the thing. It's like, okay, we want to, again, I like high school graduation rates, an easy one. Like, they like to target that all across the country. There's lots of programs at state, federal, local levels. We want to improve high school graduation rates. And it's great. That's an easy thing to aim at. It's fantastic in terms of clarity. But yeah, every four years, as you flip over an administration, if it changes back and forth from one party to another, they're going to have different ideas. Like most of them agree that we should do that, which is great. But each four years, like they have a different idea on how to do it. And if it keeps changing back and forth, they'll stop the project, flip it over and then start it again in a different direction. And so that I would say is the number one kind of existential threat. And it's it has to be a little demoralizing probably to all of the people who administer all of those programs because it's not like everybody gets flipped over, right? Like a lot of people work in these administrations long term and they want sure, to see sure. these projects complete. Yeah. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge. And to add a little clarity, it's they don't necessarily build pipelines the same way either. Like the whole architecture, it's not like there we were spinning up snowflake instances with your five trans and DBTs and all these connectors. They were always a lot more basic. It was really all focused around data collection and storage. So it was like shorter kind of pipelines, less stages to them. And it was really a lot more around collecting and storing the data and then visualizing. So you didn't and the data velocity was very slow. You're talking about right. quarterly or annual kind of data, right. Right. not this up to the minute financial transaction data that requires yeah. this high level of engineering. How often were you working on projects where one piece of that pipeline was humans? Like go and get the forms from a room somewhere and type them in. Ooh. Like how much of it is like, were you orchestrating a human pipeline at some level? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say at least 25% of the projects had something like that for sure, because it's, Again, a lot of it, a lot of what I worked with was social programs. Again, they like to use the term social return on investment. So you spend a million dollars. What kind of outcome did you produce for the community with that money? And those kinds of outcomes are often qualitative. They have quantitative aspects to it, but it really is. Did you have an improvement on various people's lives? And so you have to go ask them in one way or another, whether it's random sampling surveys that get mailed out or, yeah, the people who are actually in a program kind of following them through a year or two of completing the program, what was their outcome afterwards, especially around like job training, stuff like that. So yeah, there's very much so human aspect. Even if it go ask people with a piece of paper, it's like, hey, check in with this person and try to collect their survey response every year for a couple of years. Like it's hugely challenging to do that kind of stuff. So anytime you do see governments like publishing these numbers around citizens, what they're doing, like rest assured, there is a ton of work that legwork of people that goes into getting those numbers. Because it's not like they flow in like they do here at ClickUp, where like <laughs> data flows in through a pipeline of all kinds of triggers and actions that we're looking at. No, over there, it's, there's a lot of manual data collection. I mean, I guess somewhere at the root of most things, you still have a human somewhere, right? Like 
typing in. There's data entry somewhere in systems, at the, and maybe this is more present there. Huh. It sounds like you work with a lot of organizations that were, you'd think nonprofits would have similar time spans as companies, but governments obviously have much longer time spans, right? Like they, the problems they are resolving are on the order of like decades, if not more. And this idea of your projects are harmed by a change every, let's say, four years. In corporate life, even if we change direction every four years, chances are we'd accomplish a lot in that four years. But because the the you were probably working on a lot more longitudinal type projects and goals, maybe that's you know being victim to kind of managerial speeds that are more like ours is a problem. It's, I hadn't thought about it until you just said that. The, yeah, it's like, the, anything, like why would four years be a big deal? Yeah. 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 Well, if you're trying to accomplish a 10 year vision, four years is a problem. In, like you said, corporate life, a lot of the initiatives we spin up there, I mean, it, it's getting shorter. It's like one month initiatives, but like normally, like historically, there's been a lot of six month to one year kind of we're going to pull off this big vision. And you do really every 12 years, you're turning over your whole company's initiatives anyway. It's like your strategic initiatives tend to turn over at about that rate. Yeah. yeah. Not maybe not 12 years, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, 12 months. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> 12 months. So every year. No, for sure. For sure. Over. I think even large companies, like even take a Microsoft, right, where I, I started my career, it, at roughly, the, the, everything's operating at the same time frame, but then even the larger stories like last no more than a decade, right? That's a decade in tech is you may as well call that an entire industrial wave, right? Of you know, like software on a PC, then the internet, and then like you know, software as a service. Like these are in the realms of decades, but everything else, you're right, in the, is in the twelve to twenty four month kind of range. I would say for sure. So yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. That like the cause of projects failing is managerial changes at the four year mark. Well, how long, but your projects were short, right? Like they would bring you in, you said, if you did hundreds of these over a course of what, like how long did you work here? Like five to 10 years? I was in the field about eight years, kind of the eight broader years. field working there, yeah. So so you're, you were brought in for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so a lot of what we did was stood up the architecture, defined the KPIs, the collection method. How are we going to collect it? Where are we going to store it? How are we going to visualize it? And then we would load in sort of test data to show how the visualizations would all work. And usually we could get the first couple years of data in there. We'd find whatever historical stuff was around, load that in, and then kind of turn it over to the customer to enter the data year over year. Again, a lot of this really was annual. Some of our the higher frequency stuff around public health I was about quarterly at that time. Uh, mm. With COVID, that's gotten a lot more interesting because they were very used to, like I said, quarterly or annual reporting for public health. And so this, I know this daily COVID reporting, there has been a lot of man hours put into that because their, right. their architectures and their systems were not designed for that daily flow of data. So again, pulling that off is a huge accomplishment for every county across the country really had to, or tri-county cooperatives they have, had to really scale up in this. So I think we're going to see a lot of good outcomes in terms of yeah, like yeah. data management from that. But yeah, our projects tended to last three, three months to 12 months in there. And it really was, it was like load in what you have, architect everything the best you can, turn it over with a nice operating manual, and then let them collect it for a few years and look for the trends and try to really turn the curve on those trends in a positive direction by strategic initiatives and other things that you sure. Kind of I mean, that's their their job, I suppose. But you know, we talk in our industry a lot about you know whether analytics should be fully centralized as a function, or should there be you know kind of people vended out, right? Should you give analysts to other teams, or should every function business function have their own little analytics team? Like we talk about this a lot, I think, in our field. And you spent eight years 
handing off projects, right? You kept handing off data projects. What did you do to ensure once you handed them off that they wouldn't fall off the rails right after you left? The main thing, this is what I like about it, is the product that we built over there that kind of spearheaded this business intelligence system specifically designed for governments and nonprofits. It was structured in a way, it was a database and a business intelligence tool. So it could store data, you could load data into it, and then it would visualize it for you. And that was very helpful for them because, again, that shortcuts the data pipeline problem of like, oh, well, now we have to spin up a database. Where do we do that in government? Oh, we're going to do it on this floor of this building over here, or we have to go use AWS GovCloud, like things like that are really can be time consuming. So we were able to sort of shortcut that and say, hey, we'll store the data for you and we'll visualize it for you in the same place. And when you have that power over a project or I guess an offering of a product like that, you can build the product in such a way that it forces them to be successful. So you, the, this product, the way that the data was architected is you had to pick a reporting frequency. So it had to be quarterly or annual per KPI. So you can't like double load in data twice for the same year. It's like, nope, there's only one year allowed for this KPI or one data point per. And then you also preloaded a bunch of settings around those sorts of KPIs, like up higher is better or lower is better. So it could do green and red arrows and all that kind of stuff. So we got to basically hard code in the rules that we knew were consistent over time for all customers in this space. That's what that's how you can be successful with a niche product like that in a market, whereas like Tableau can obviously do much, much more than we ever could on the visualization side. But you had to have somebody that knew all the rules of KPIs and built it out for you. And like they didn't necessarily have that all the time. So we shortcutted all that by building that functionality into the business rules of the product itself. And so we used our product that was, I mean, we would push our product, obviously, because we were a SaaS business and that's what we wanted to be successful. But like we really believed in the product and we built it in such a way that if you used our product versus using a, a tool that's very flexible, you could find yourself in trouble if you didn't architect things properly down the road. But if you used our product and you had to load data in according to the rules that we set up, then you really can't screw it up. All you could do is screw up the data collection, which is obviously always a threat. But that's kind of the simplest failure point that we would leave Got them it. with. So you constrained, if I were to paraphrase, right? You constrained their ability to model and transform things once you left. And th what they needed to make sure they kept doing was is like, you know, kind of bring data in and, and read data on the other side. But you basically limited their ability to change things in how it was refined along. That was yeah, that was the design decision. Same thing you would do in a company like ClickUp, like we have processes it's like, hey, you have to load it in here. You have to clean it in this way. Like you have to go through these steps. Like you kind of put those controls in place. Well, since we led the projects, we got to just build those rules into our system. It's like, hey, if you want to work with us, you want to have these kinds of outcomes, you're going to For follow sure. these rules because these are what have been shown to work. But entropy is like, you know, is the is a fact of the universe, right? And so, you know, as someone who's in a leadership position, right, you start to think about the kind of a, uh, there's a morbid way of thinking about it, like the hit by a bus version or like the permanent vacation <laughs> version, which is nicer, I suppose. And how long will the kind of rules and processes you have in place at ClickUp remain if there's not constant kind of watering of that garden by you and, and people in the kind of central data function is we don't tend to test that, right? We kind of know that there's going to be someone nurturing it along the way. And, but yet you as a, in a consultant role, like you, you kept setting people up from scratch and then leaving. So it sounds like you just set up, you created more constraints to prevent decay. 
Yeah, definitely. You were able to set up system constraints that really had to be abided by. Whereas, yes, most of what we have at ClickUp or in like a business, they're rules. They're written down somewhere, but you can write yeah. SQL however you want. Like yeah. You can load things in there. Like you can control for it in certain levels. But in general, yeah, you have to use humans to kind of reinforce that. Right, right. I mean... I'll tell you a random story from like my first my first internship in college. Like you know, the first job basically I ever had. Well, I guess was first was my uncle. I did some data entry at his company, but leave, leave that out. I did tech support, right? I did IT tech support as my first ever internship, and the worst people in a way to support for computer problems were the ones who thought they were smarter than they were and did a bunch of stuff, and then would of course forget about it. And then when they would complain about everything's broken and you're like, what did you do? Nothing. And it's like, no, you did something and you did a lot of things and you just don't want to explain it to me. And if you just did, I'll be able to debug this. And in some ways, whereas a naive user who just like sits in front of their computer and just does whatever it says is like less of a headache. Yeah, yeah. I did. I did nothing. I Googled what registry keys were. I might have gone into a few things. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's absolutely right. Yeah, the, the, it, it was, and so in a way, as we make everyone savvier in companies, which is something we all want to increase autonomy and you know, like capability at the edge of the organization, we do potentially encounter. You might encounter more people who will skew from your rules uh, because they're like, oh, I, I just downloaded the CSV and I did some stuff in this like Excel. I mean, it seemed fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you make them no, those... more dangerous. I was actually just explaining that to somebody the other day about census. I was like, well, if, if you give somebody access to census, like with just a couple button clicks, you can basically rewrite the entire data flow of a company. Like you guys made it so easy that right. you made people potentially be very dangerous in a way that they yes. never could have been otherwise. Yes, yes. I focused on giving people power and now mm -hmm. I have to create the safeties and that's a lot of what we're working on uh, one user <laughs> said this is like and i quote a machine gun and i was like wow i've never heard a product i've worked on described that way <laughs> but yeah, yeah to your point yeah it's like we've we definitely give you a lot of power which i, I thought was important well okay so what's all right let, speaking of like ClickUp and how you know your systems are different there but before we get into the difference in the systems that you've built there was there anything because that's a decent career in this kind of consulting role. And then, you know, I understand why you wanted to switch and I applaud anyone uh, who listens like that. Yes, you should work on something where you get to own it for a long period of time. It's a very different life experience than, you know, letting things go all the time. And I'd like to say that the, it's more rewarding. It's also more painful, but it's a little more rewarding. But uh, what was anything you had to like, was there anything you had to unlearn when you got to click up after all those years in that kind of mode? I think my, the biggest like, oh, maybe is like I had been working a lot with like government and nonprofit speed. And as you can imagine, the valley speed and tech speed is like very different than that. But and I think that was probably like the main thing looking at them in sort of a vacuum. It's like, OK, that's going to be the tough part. But it really didn't end up being much of a challenge because, again, even when you're working in that space as a consultant, like you would have, we'd have five, 10 projects going at the same time. Like that you, you have like all of, so like they may be moving at a certain speed, but you can kind of stack them on top of each other and you can give the kickoff call on Monday for one company and then Tuesday for another. So it ended up being pretty similar on that stage. ClickUp being an incredibly fast moving company. I mean, shipping full feature products every week, like actual feature changes has been like watching that for a year has been incredible with what the engineering team is willing to do and push through. Other than that, I don't think there was a lot to unlearn. I was just super excited to dive in. And I mean, it's been a great opportunity to start with a company 
the values data from day one. And basically they give you a blank check to say, hey, let's build an absolutely amazing tech stack for analytics from the ground up using the latest kind of 2020 technology like that. I couldn't say no to that opportunity, even if I wanted to. I, I can't think of a better scenario than that. Yeah, I, I agree. So it's, it's definitely I can retroactively tell you, yes, that was a good career move, although you don't need me to say that. I mean, anytime you can join also something that's like fast growing and changing, it's it, you're going to you're going to get a lot out of it almost in any role, which is you know, startups tend to parrot that a lot. But I, I do think there's something to that. Well, given that the engineering team, which kind of sits before you in a way in the data pipeline, right? Given how quickly they ship and how often they're changing things, do they actually make your life difficult in terms of the source data models changing constantly or not really? Do they handle the kind of migrations of you know events and data models well for you? I think it's definitely a challenge. They ship quickly and architecture is like all over the place. They will add tables really quick to get product features out. And that ends up to be really good in our industry. Being highly competitive, speed is actually more important than like perfect architecture, for sure. Like being able to pivot, move, turns out to be very important when you're fully saturated in a market. And they built the architecture in such a way that can be pivoted on. And what it did do is caused us to probably slow down for a couple months really early on in our architecture and really design for robustness. Like we had to build processes and scripts and tools that ensured that changes in the underlying architecture didn't take everything down. And they still don't to this day. Like they can do quite a bit to the data and it won't necessarily impact a lot of the work we do because we have so many layers of cleaning and processing and post-processing to kind of look for a bunch of different stuff. And the main thing that we don't do a lot of is like we don't delete columns a lot, right? Like the engineering team's not like, oh, this feature didn't work. Let's just nuke that table and drop this column. They'll add columns a lot, but they don't go back and remove them. So from a data architecture standpoint, it's not all that difficult. I think the hardest part would just be like lack of documentation. Like it would be awesome to just have documentation, but instead we get to ask the engineering team a lot of questions and they're super friendly and we get to meet them and learn about all their design decisions and why they did things. And then we try to kind of document that really uh, we get to use DBT, uh, which we absolutely love here. So we load all that in DBT. We can, that's something. And whenever I listen to these podcasts, it's always like you hear people and you're like, oh, I wish I could do that. Like, I want to be super clear before we talk about anything. Like everything is a work in progress. Like when I say we load it into DBT, like we load it the best we can into DBT. Right. And so it's, yeah, it's always changing. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's becoming a theme I find in my conversations that people really need to embrace that it's always going to be a little bit broken. And I think data people need to hear this more than I thought, because I think they're, the industry, our, our field is a lot of people who are somewhat obsessed with getting the thing right <laughs> and, and maybe are not as comfortable dealing with, eh, it's directionally right and let's improve it, right, as we go. Not to leave it standing at being only half right. The thing that I find in fast changing software that you're importing into the data stack is not deletion. And to your point, like it tends to be additive, which is good. It's that there can be very, it's very easy for very subtle changes to get introduced where, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example from our side. And I wonder if this will resonate for you where, you know, our database tracks, like, you know, how many records were processed and, you know, all the kind of those kinds of numbers, right? It's like, ah, we had 38 failures and et cetera, et cetera. And that's recorded on every run of our system. And that's, but then 
the way that's designed is purely for executing our system. So when we introduce this certain concepts around parceling out the data into batches, then the meaning of that those rows in the database kind of change to be like, well, this is for each batch, and then like you got to aggregate those batches back into this to get the same meaning as before. And so, if it's fast changing engineering environment, I it's great that you get the tables directly into your systems, but I feel like that is where a lot of the management difficulty kicks in for you. And I'm wondering if you have any tricks. I don't think we that that hasn't been such a big problem for us. And I think our okay. main trick is actually what you could call like a design mistake. Like it's you could probably do this better. So we do a lot of wholesale refreshes. If a table is small enough and so we use Airflow for a lot of our internal data migration, if a table is small enough, we won't spend the time and write good incremental update code for it. Sure. We'll just drop it and refresh it every day. And that falls with the performance of our production servers and the stat servers that we pull from and Snowflake and Airflow, kind of our whole pipeline. We can do wholesale refreshes of a lot of tables. And that's what we do. And I think that has negated that issue for a lot of it is we don't have like, oh, they added a column. We didn't go back and fill in the data. We get these refreshes. And then the way we have everything modeled, it basically changes. So the only place it might give us a headache would be all the way at the end of the pipeline in an analytics or an ML flow where it would change values on like a dashboard that somebody didn't expect. And they would kind of troubleshoot it from there. So I think it it solves itself early on there. We do have a whole bunch of tests in the middle that might catch that kind of thing. But I think those refreshes are probably the thing that saves us from most of that. The tooling is getting really good to, to deal with structural changes and ensuring you're keeping track of structural changes. And where things get difficult and it's just fundamentally subtle is semantic changes where, you know, the meaning of this column is actually slightly different now because the engineering team is changing how they're depending on it in their own code. Or now in the code, in the app code, there is now a calculation based on that field that is not being put back into the database. So like, and you're, there's no way the data stack would be aware of that. Those are the things where it's, it's just really hard to catch those preemptively, right? And I, I guess you've got the right thing, which is to ensure that the pipeline goes all the way to the end. And then when you're at the end, at least track anything that looks anomalous and, and investigate. Yeah. And I would so, say also our engineering yeah. team would struggle with the same thing. Like it's kind of a curse to them too. like our structure is big enough and our team has been small enough historically that I would say they haven't ventured to want to change the semantic meanings of columns because then they would also be poisoning the well for themselves. Cor- and so they correct. haven't done it as much. Correct. But I think, and this is something that I, th- I think about this a lot because, you know, a lot of what's happening in the world of data is inheriting and in, bringing down from the world of engineering and adapting it for our use, right? And in app development, you do change database schemas all the time. But in products like ours or companies like ours, and which is how most companies work, you can't do that without also authoring the database migration. So so any change forces you, you submit with that change, the, the modification to the database, and therefore the update to all existing records, which is, you know, one of the main, one of the, the few things that still causes like downtime in a web application is database migrations. And there is no equivalent process to transfer that to the data stack. And so I think that's one of the ways in which you get impedance. I almost think that anytime there's a database migration in the product side, there should be like an RSS feed for you to just go like, is this important or not? Is this meaningful or not? And sometimes it might not be because it's just purely a, you know, 
it, it adds a flag for like something on the UI and you, you don't care, right? It's just un unrelated to anything you do. That might be an interesting integration for someone to build at some point. Well, okay, so so Mark, walk me through the this like the pipeline you've built. So it sounds like there's a lot of people on your team now at ClickUp. And so from the raw data that you're collecting all the way to ML insights, like how does it work? Yeah, I think this is where I've spent the most time. So when I came on board, a lot of the focus was like, hey, we have a couple of these ML problems. They're operational models that are going to drive business value. We want to get to that. And I think ClickUp is one of the... I, don't, I can't know this because I haven't seen this as many times, but I think ClickUp is probably one of the first companies that I've seen that did pretty like really advanced machine learning before we had our baseline KPIs. So in terms of like using Snowflake to generate KPIs and build dashboards for executives that showed where the company's going, we actually put that on the back burner and we focused on some of these ML problems. So we solved that. So we really built the data warehouse and architected it to support machine learning first. And that causes you to really think long term. And I think that's part of the thing I got to do from my previous experience is like I was always looking at the two, three, four, five years down the road kind of vision. But I paired that with click up speed of like, what can we deliver today? What can we deliver today? Like always finding these quick wins is a big part of our culture. And so it was basically like every month we shipped something that would be super important for a lot of people as we brought in more data. So the, the overall architecture, it was built to support machine learning. So it was all around temporal management. How do we manage time, point in time, being able to look at user journeys, that kind of stuff. And the KPIs is something we're still working on today is like perfecting those, figuring out how to ship all of that. But in terms of the actual architecture, that's where I spent. I mean, this has been here a little over a year. That was definitely the first six months was 100% architecture. It's like I came on board. I kind of stared at the problem. And about two hours later into my first day, we put up the data engineer job posting. And then it was like more data engineers. And it was just like, OK, we have to really start from first principles here, which is great. It's like, again, it's an amazing opportunity to be like, OK, we're going to start from scratch. What do we choose? Like we choose Snowflake, we choose Fivetran, we chose Census, like boom, okay, we've got our tools. We have a full working pipeline in just a few months by bringing these tools on board. Now that we have it, let's start loading some stuff into it. And so we started with our product data. Our product is big enough and our database, our data, our customers are big enough that we don't really want to do analytics on our like production area or whatever. even the tools like we don't want to use. Like we want to use something like a snowflake, right? Like you could do For a lot sure. of like AWS, you do a lot of analytics in there, but we wanted to move it out, yeah. get it to be high speed. So we started bringing our product data into Snowflake and then started really connecting all kinds of other stuff with Fivetran and bringing that in. And over the last year, it's evolved a lot. And I think what we have now, I borrowed a lot from my previous experience of being a product manager around a tool. And like I said, really locking functions in. Like we built an architecture that basically forces best practices. It's not just we have a data lake and then we have a data warehouse and we have data marts. Like we have more layers than that. And the layers look tedious if it's your first day at ClickUp. And then on your like 50th day at ClickUp, you're like, thank God these layers are here <laughs> because you start to see the value in them. So the way it basically works is we have roles on the team. So we basically have this thing that's kind of the broader data team. So not everybody works directly in my team. We have embedded analysts. We have data engineers and analytics engineers and machine learning engineers and various types of analysts kind of all layered through the pipeline. But we pair the pipeline area and tool with the people and their job function. 
And so starting at the very beginning, we basically bring things into a Snowflake data lake where we drop everything off. And then we move it right into DBT where we start doing like layer after layer of cleaning. This is through a lot of the best practices. Like we didn't invent this, but we adopted like all of these. So like you have a base layer, you do all your renaming and your dates and everything. So like our analysts never have to deal with like date mismatches is our absolute goal. Like we solve that at the very first layer. We take Unix and we turn that into a timestamp and we take timestamps and we make sure that they're UTC. So we read the documentation, figure out where the server time is, move it accordingly. So everything runs UTC on a same timestamp in Snowflake. And so you can join everything downstream. So like that's the kind of base layer that we do. And that's required. Like you can't put in a PR and push data in there that doesn't have those renames occurring. And then we use a intermediate layer where we remove all the bad data. And this is part of the part, uh, probably the part where we are very agile on the data team to pair with the agility of the art engineering team is this layer is one you can probably skip elsewhere kind of at your own peril mm. depending on your upstream data we have a lot of errant data we just do i mean we've moved so fast uh, we have a lot of things that don't connect and keys that aren't there and we have duplicates and some systems that like just doesn't make any sense but instead of going upstream which we i do as much as possible like i'll go upstream and be like hey this data is wrong this data is wrong but if they can't help or they don't have time we just account for that in a whole layer called intermediate that just cleans. That's all it does. It filters out deleted records. If we see errant data that throws our tests off in DBT, we scrub them in that layer. And that layer is really helpful because every person downstream who like ever sees something missing or they see some sort of an error, they know you just go right to the intermediate layer. You don't have to look in our data marts. You have to look in Tableau in the very end of the pipeline. Like you, we know where it got kicked out. Like it's going to get kicked out in this one layer. And so we can move up there and then basically finalizing all of that into a bunch of tables that the data engineers basically take in that beginning data, swap it all, clean it up, and then they give it into a final layer for each basically data source. So every data source comes in, has final tables, and that's where the analytics engineer's job really starts. So they get to start with data that has timestamp standardized, all the IDs have been cleaned up and they match. So like we have all our IDs internally in our data warehouse match our internal ID schema. So if you have a user ID in a different system, we changed that to say source user ID, like as the name of it. Whereas all of our internal ones, if it's our internal user ID, we let it just be user ID. And so all those questions get cleaned up in those layers by the data engineering and then analytics engineering get to really focus on creating value from that data. And so they're working with the analysts, with business data stakeholders directly and saying, like, how do you want to use this data? And then they'll take 10, 15 tables and they'll collapse that all down into one table with no IDs in it. It's just email addresses, not user IDs, like all of it's cleaned up. And so we really use this approach that we love, which is the big wide tables. I've seen this a lot of other places, too. We we don't try to do like data vault or facts and dimensions like this. Right. Those are great. And you have to have some sort of system to do it. Our agility, we kind of tried some of those. We played with a lot of these practices and the agility just wasn't there. It was always like review council. Like now we have to sit down, we have to debate what's a fact, what's a dimension, where do we put this, where do we put that? But if we know that we need to get a certain value out of like Salesforce data, for example, we know we can flatten like the sales rep onto the opportunity object. Like we can flatten all of this. Like you can turn Salesforce's like 50 use uh, core tables into one and it's really wide and it's really useful for BI. Like you can build almost anything from it. Totally. And so we bring it helps that, that most approach. of their relationships are one to many. <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah, and I can't take credit for that. Like that's that like some of the people on my team have kind of dreamed these up and built them and they're absolutely fantastic at it. And having that sort of this layer approach and then the big wide tables is super agile for us. And then those big wide tables then are basically what the analysts touch. So they get to come in, just see that table and build on it. So they get to focus on that really getting a visualizations up and running. We can even do machine learning from a lot of those wide tables. They become the dimensions right. that they can run right. for a lot of that. And then we build other sort of specialty models for the time series stuff. That's what really keeps their headspace clear is knowing which part they're working on and knowing which kinds of data errors they can expect to see. And we try to account for those errors at each level and we pair the dbt tests into each layer for what it should be occurring there and that's been it took a while like this took months of evolution and we worked hard at it and as it's coming online and being fully functional now it's incredibly robust like it catches everything pretty much it's very rare i mean if anything slips through like we forgot the test and then we have to go back now right, of and course it's robust again so yeah so and you assign different so there's different people working in each of these layers, right? Like you said, like the analytics, the analyst only plays with the, you know, kind of large tables, the wide tables. The analytics engineer is building those. And then I forget what title you use, like, but lower level in the data engineering side is the ones working on the kind of the cleanup layers. Is that fair? Yeah. So for us, data engineering is ingestion and processing. So they're working with Airflow. They're working with Fivetran, our data lake. They live over there and they're everybody. It's super cool. Like everybody upscales. We all meet every Friday and we all share kind of what we did that week. The whole broader team. So analysts, Same. And data engineers. Yeah, we have to do that, especially again at our speed, like they because we come up with new things every week. And so we all basically share those practices. And there's obviously there's bleed across where like one person will not want to finish something. So they'll bring it across the finish line. And they really like everyone can overlap by like 50 percent of the layer next to them. So like analytics engineers can do the early modeling and the analysts so far here, at least we have very probably higher tech skill analysts than a lot of people do because our data warehouse was new. They can swim upstream into the pipeline as well and do things. But in general, those are kind of the guardrails of where people can work. And then that, again, clears the headspace. So they only have to worry about certain kinds of errors like analytics engineers have to worry about duplicates on how they join. Data engineers need to worry about timestamps and naming conventions. And then analysts just need to focus on are fields missing or are they complete? Things like that. Do you find that anyone not enjoying working only on one of the layers like they really want to kind of mix and match like because they're bored of like just focusing on data cleanup or something or or not really i think not so much but we have had we've had people move i mean you can kind of move positions that's not something that i'm like oh we absolutely can't do that like no like as people want to move or reskill i try to highly encourage that like uh, we've had analysts kind of move up into the analytics engineering where they really skill up in sql and dbt and model building sort of thinking we've seen that and i think that'll definitely continue like you really get that choice you can swim upstream and then potentially you can have data engineers that want to get closer to the business too i've seen that start to emerge and so we that's available basically but as you kind of come in each day yeah you have a primary operating mode of kind of where you are that keeps that focus but changing skills yeah in our industry is like a huge thing yeah i mean it even the list of what skills you're supposed to have seems to be like in flux right well okay so let me finish with this question since we talked a lot about how you deal with the rapid change be you know behind you so to speak <laughs> like on the source data upstream 
ClickUp has grown a ton, right, since you've been there. And most of that growth is not behind you. It's also ahead of you and like all the downstream kind of users of your data and consumers and people are waiting for all sorts of analyses, I'm sure, and predictions and all sorts of great things that your team does. How do you stay ahead of your users if they're if the company's growing so much? Like, how do you kind of predict, if anything, what they're going to need as opposed to being caught off guard like when I assume you wake up every morning and there's a new request? Yeah, pretty much. That's a hard one. I would say, I wouldn't say we've done a bad job there, but I think that has been the challenge is, and I I tell this a lot to the stakeholders too, is like, there's always going to be more analytics requests than you'll ever be able to field. And so like, you have to sort of have a gatekeeper who decides what's the ROI of every single project and having good frontline analytics managers and even analysts like asking the tough questions like, hey, do you really need this? Could we use it or could you solve it with something we already have to 95% accuracy, like especially around dashboarding in that area. But a lot of what we do occasionally over the last year, departments have just kind of popped up in ClickUp. Occasionally, like we won't have a department and then all of a sudden, boom, we hired 10 people. <laughs> and boom, there's a whole department you didn't know. And then now they have specialized analytics requests. So that has snuck up on us for sure. One of the things that I do, I monitor very carefully, though, is our overall headcount as a company. And I have a percentage number of that that I try to keep our team. So I'm looking at company headcount. This is going to be unique to every company, their appetite for data and all that. But you can find a percentage point where you kind of build an org chart. And you look at your company because this, again, it only applies to like hyper growth or like high growth sure, companies. Sure. Otherwise, you're going to feel the pain. You're going to see you're going to hire for it. But as you know, right now in this hiring climate, like finding the right person for some of these jobs, it can be three months. So you open a position, you interview 50 people and it none of them end up working out. Like you can go through a lot of people trying to find yeah. the right one. And so you do have to be very early. And that's what that percentage of overall headcount is. So it's like, hey, oh, the company is all of a sudden 700 people and now we're lagging behind three or four people. Okay, where can we fill those in the org chart and hiring kind of early? And that's not, that's going to be advice for this kind of hyper growth for sure, where you're moving so fast, you hire a little bit before it hurts. And that's pretty rare. I think I've seen the opposite side of that and I've lived the opposite side of that quite a bit where like you hire when it hurts and that can be good. At ClickUp speed, that is not good. You do not want to wait until absolutely everything hurts, or you'll be three. No, no. I mean, in a large, basically, the faster something is moving, the more bottlenecks become noticeable, right? And and all you want to do is solve the bottleneck because that's the thing that slows everything else down. So, so it's in a weird way. This is good advice for people who are in fast-moving organizations. Just your job is to never be the bottleneck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, we the... even talk about it internally. Is like, like we look at one department, like, ooh, they didn't scale quite right, or like, oh, that's going to hurt for a couple months now. And yeah. yeah, you try to avoid it. It and it's like a game we play almost. Like it's fun. Yeah, no, that's true. Do you think of the ratios as company wide? Like, if the company has a thousand people, this is how many I should have, or is it like engineering versus downstream? Like, or do you just kind of make it a coarse grained? No, I do. I do company wide. Company wide is the easiest. The only thing is we do have like a lot of support and a lot of sales reps and you don't necessarily want to scale with the same with those teams because they can be a lot bigger. But at our current rate, just coarse grain, top level, we're looking at a percent of company is how many analytics professionals we need. And the hardest part still that falls to me is that a data engineer or an analyst? Like sure. which part sure. of the pipeline are we hiring? Totally, for? totally. Do you have a, a rule of thumb you would share, even though every company is different? Because I think like people, I've had people ask me like, how big should my data team be? And I'm like, I'm way outside. I'm like, I, I, don't, I can't make a number up for you, but 
maybe you feel comfortable saying it. Yeah, the rule th- I'm I'm comfortable sharing it for sure. So our rule of thumb is three percent. Like that's what I'm looking at is three percent, but that could change over time. Like right now, the types of projects we're taking on are a little different. As we move more data science and ML into the product itself, that number could go up significantly. Like I know like some companies you have Ubers and DoorDashes where like their whole company's logistics like it might be eight ten percent there like it can be a lot higher sure but so far for us a lot of it is operational models operational data and we find that number has been working pretty well for us no that's good i i think like look as with everything right better to have something and iterate on it than to say i don't know what the ratio should be so <laughs> for anyone listening like you may as well start with three percent and see whether you're on or off above or below and, and then adjust this is definitely one of those where it's like better to start with something and and and, yeah. and then figure out you know, how to adjust over time, especially in a small enough company, 3% is, is still like integers, like, like single, like fits on one, one or two hands. Well, listen, Mark, that was fascinating for me. So thanks for walking me through your life story. I, you and I had only ever talked about some of your click up at work, but I found it really interesting to see the contrast with consulting work and governmental work. I don't know if I'm jealous or, or not. Like, I think it's neat. I think it is neat to work on things that are by definition, you know, these very long outlooks these 10 plus year view visions. And I think a lot of us, you know, when you found a company, you think in those ways, but I do think like the majority of like the business cycle is so much shorter and it is interesting that they, they get that benefit. But with the, the downside is like <laughs> their projects often don't work out for sure. Um, yeah. It's all trade-offs. And I don't know, I both have, I don't know that I would say one is better. I think, I think I enjoy owning projects more for sure. And you can learn a lot. Like I've learned a ton in the last year, but you also learn a lot on the consulting side. Like if you have never done consulting and like you have the skill set, you get an offer to do it, like doing it for a year. Like it's not something you have to commit to like long term, but in short periods of times, so you can get to see the inside of dozens of organizations. And that gives you a whole perspective to draw on. You can be like, oh, well, I saw this one person doing this one thing. Like you learn very quickly a bunch. Yeah. I've taught a lot of friends over the years that I think our world, not even our industry, is like doesn't do enough cross-pollination. And uh, a friend of mine worked at a nonprofit, and they had a there was like one guy who was a programmer, and they would just have him sit in every meeting because they the all of their problems. He would walk out at the end of the meeting, so he'd be like, "You could do this with a computer. You could do this with a computer. You could do this with a computer." <laughs> and if he wasn't in the room, no one would know. Like the, the thought wouldn't even occur to them. And so, but and he wouldn't know about their problems. So they just dropped him into all the meetings, and th- that's how they would, you know. And then his backlog would be generated off of that, right? And he would help them see like the potential. And there's probably a lot of that in the world, you know, of not realizing what you could do with data, not realizing that something is solvable. And it's same, probably same for us. It's like to your point, like I think a lot of us don't work in consultative uh, roles. We don't, we kind of specialize in one industry, right? Whether it's private sector or public sector or even within one of those. And there's probably a lack of perspectives that we all have. So I don't know how to, it's, it's hard to tell people like, hey, go to some other jobs for a while. But I do think I've toyed with the idea of a, what I call an adult internship. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
I will say in terms of telling people to go get other jobs, I'll say as people with entrepreneurial spirit, there is still a lot of really high barrier, well-protected niches in the government nonprofit space for tech. Like it's not fully explored. Uh, A lot of people in the traditional technology career paths don't end up over there. Like you said, one guy with a computer can shape the course of a nonprofit. Well, what can somebody with a really great SaaS tool targeted towards some of the issues they have do? Like you can shape 50 nonprofits or 50 governments and change the course of policy. Like, I think that's very much so still possible with tech. I think it's very underexplored the way a lot of the stuff like I click up, we work in project management. Like this is a very explored space. Like we, we have tried all kinds of stuff and the innovation has been great, but we're building on the shoulders of giants. And yeah, in that you can really still start from scratch in a lot of things. Yeah. No, I, I always tell people like the world is not as sophisticated as you think and there's a lot of opportunity out there and which is good right i mean otherwise wow what are we doing but yes good reminder don't be scared to try to improve government it is yeah it's a good it's a good message to finish on like don't be cynical like the government can be improved and 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 they are able to use technology if if it's designed right and, and brought to them well yeah well listen mark thanks so much let's do this again soon yeah this is fantastic thanks boris Well, folks, until next time, this is The Sequel Show. Special thanks to Joe Stevens for our theme song. And thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to get notified for future episodes.